Thanks for being with us on this Sunday morning. Well, there was a one-day hearing at a BC Human Rights Tribunal room, and I did not cover the hearing, but I've been reading about it on social media and in the National Post as well. Sounds like it was a pretty raucous hearing with the adjudicator having to tell at least one side in this case to, uh, well, had to maintain the decorum of the hearing. Let's bring in now... Jay Cameron, who is a litigation manager with the Alberta-based Justice Centre for Constitutional Freedoms. He is also the lawyer defending a business owner at this hearing. Jay, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Morning, Jill. Thanks for having me. Bring us up to speed, if you can, because this is a bit of a strange one. It has to do with a transgender woman who took this case to the tribunal because she was denied service at a home-based, a home-based aesthetician-type studio. So, how did we get where we are today? So, it is. It's uh, stranger than fiction. Uh, the truth is, and in this case, uh, the Justice Center represents five uh, salon operators who operate out of their own homes. And they were approached by somebody who identifies as female, uh, but has male physiology, male uh, a penis and testicles. And uh, the individual wanted a bikini wax, um, which is colloquially known in the industry as a Brazilian. And my clients, for a variety of reasons, are not comfortable with providing that service. Uh, so there are there are cultural and religious components to their objections. There's a lack of training. There's a lack of comfort. There's a lack of safety because they work out of their own homes with small children. And so the position before the tribunal of all of the respondents in these cases, the women that we represent, is, is that a woman cannot be compelled to wax physiologically male genitals against her will. And, and that it would be improper for the state to attempt to compel women to do that, and it would be improper to punish them for it. And the argument being made by the complainant, uh, again, a transgender woman by the name of Jessica Yanov, uh, the argument being made is uh, Jessica Yanov says that she is being discriminated against because she is transgender. Is that, am I, is that a fair uh, summing up of what she's arguing or has argued at the tribunal? Yes, that's the argument. The complaint says that uh, they're female and they identify as female and that they're a woman. And so um, that my clients have to wax um, their testicles. And um, But the, the key point is, uh, from my client's perspective, is, is that someone's identity does not change their physiology. And so this is Right. When you strip down to the nitty gritty, you take right. This is this is a service that is provided when someone is naked. Right. And somebody's identity is separate from the physiological reality. And um, so that's really what this case hinges on. Uh, and, and people listening to this, if people aren't familiar with the case, are probably wondering, as you said off the offset, it's it's stranger than fiction. And this case, uh, having followed it, it's just I, I guess what stands out to me is if, if your clients had a history of waxing male genitalia on people who identified as male and then said no to somebody with male genitalia who identified as a woman, we would have a problem. But this is not a case of that. It's not as though any of these estheticians actually do this. No, that's exactly right. We actually uh, brought in an expert who operates a salon on Vancouver Island 
and all she does is wax her salon. All it does is wax male genitalia. That's, she's got 28 years of experience doing it. And she also does trans-identifying individuals. And there's no issue because it's a question of biology. You're providing a service on a specific part, and they have the training for it, and, uh, and they're comfortable doing it. And so, I mean, it's really like taking uh, a bicycle uh, in for service uh, to a grocery store. Um, it's, it's not a service that my clients provide. Right. And I mean, is, does it not, like you said, you can't force somebody, male or female, to, provo- to provide a service on somebody's genitalia if, if A, they're not trained, and B, they don't want to. Now, and so, yes, and the expert testified extensively about what happens to male genitalia when you handle it for a prolonged period of time with warm wax. A lot of men get erections. And then a significant portion of them want sexual services and they get belligerent and aggressive when they don't get it. So, I mean, you have to remember people who are listening to this story have to remember that there is, you know, there is a very intimate physiological reality that is working its way uh, out when, when somebody is servicing uh, genitalia and uh, you know, it's, it's a vulnerable position to be put in as a service provider, and you should be comfortable doing it and trained to do it if you're going to do it. Uh, exactly. And I mean, I have a, a good friend who has a salon uh, in Washington State, and I, years ago she told me this. Uh, a man came in wanting a, a wax on his genitalia, and she said, sorry, I, I, I can't do that. I've never done it. I'm not trained. And he went on his way. But it seems like if a case like this, if the complainant is successful, I, I mean, I can't even imagine it, in a scenario where she or any other salon owner or esthetician would have to do that. Yeah, it would be without precedent in Canadian law. It would be tremendously oppressive for the state to punish these women. And, and there are significant punishments being sought by the complainant. Uh, the, the amount sought has been increased from $1,000 to, in some cases, $15,000. Uh, and so, I mean, this is high stakes. And for some of these women, it's not an exaggeration to say that it's wrecked their business and it's wrecked their lives. So it's an important case. Uh, the the complainant as well, uh, and again, I wasn't at the one-day hearing, but from what I've read about it and seen on social media, it sounds like it was raucous, to say the least. What was it like that day at the hearing? So uh, it was actually the third hearing that we've done. Uh, there were two hearings on July 4th and 5th, and then we did a hearing on the 17th. But there are 14 complaints against uh, owners of salons. And uh, the Justice Center only represents five, five of the 14 women. But uh, the hearings were, uh, you know, I mean, part of it is that the complainant is self-represented. And so uh, there's a process that the complainant is not familiar with. And so uh, there's always going to be a learning curve uh, in that aspect of things. Um, but, yes, I mean, there were, there were comments, uh, a lot of comments made about um, the nature of people's culture and religion and how people shouldn't be able to hide behind their culture and religion in in refusing to wax genitals. Uh, There was accusations thrown around about how, uh, you know, people refusing to do this or hiding behind their culture were neo-Nazis. So there was inflammatory commentary like that. Um, Yeah, so, I mean, it was interesting.
it was something to see. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, do you find that this particular case, is it kind of blurring the lines in that the complainant is making it about gender identity, is making it an LGBTQ issue? Uh, does that kind of, I mean, is that even part of it? Well, from the complainant's perspective, certainly that's been a, uh, the main uh, thrust of the case. So, I mean, as far from our client's position, I mean, I think it's important, very important to say that my clients don't, they don't hate anybody. They aren't out to get anybody. They aren't not out to get or marginalize anybody. Uh, this is, this for them is about, they're in their own homes. They're not comfortable for a variety of reasons. And in a free and democratic society, they ought to be respected. That's their position. Uh, because this is a significant infringement. I mean, does anybody think that it is a good idea to compel a woman working out of her own home to have a strange, naked, biological male with an erection in her house? And, and that's really what this case is about. And that's the question it comes down to. And, and I suppose, too, getting back to uh, what we were talking about earlier is if if perhaps the women that are, are being that are at the focus of this complaint, if they had a history of providing this service and then discriminated against somebody, then I can kind of see where this case would come from. But again, that's not what we're talking about. No, it's not at all. I mean, and. You know, again, these women, they're not looking for problems. They're attempting to supplement income. They've got small kids. Some of them are single women trying to make ends meet. And they are providing the service to, to, the, to the female community who have uh, biological female parts. And that's the exclusive service that they're, that they're comfortable offering. And some of them have had to shut down their businesses because of these complaints. And did it did it come up in the hearing as well? Because we are talking about a complainant who has made part of the complaint about being a transgender woman, who even though uh, this person still has male genitalia, identifies as a woman. Uh, d- did it come up at all as far as that? Uh, I mean, it doesn't matter how you identify. What matters in this particular case is your physical what you physically have when you arrive at the salon. Yeah, that's that's been a major uh, part of the of the respondent's case of my client's case. So we've talked extensively about uh, the service that's being provided and the difference between waxing male and female genitalia, and and there is a significant difference, right? And so, ultimately speaking, if you're showing up and you're asking to have a particular part serviced, the whether or not you have that part is of central relevance to this case. And so, yes, we've gone back and forth on this issue quite a bit. What happens with it now? As you said, you are representing five of 14 women who are at the center of this. Uh, we've had the, the number of hearings at the tribunal. What happens next at this point? So there's been a timeline set for closing submissions, and um, the complainant is going to make submissions then uh, our clients are going to make written submissions. Then there's an opportunity for a reply. And then the uh, tribunal is going to make a decision regarding the case. And, uh, you know, that will be in writing. And I expect it will be sometime after September. Um, so, I mean, there's three cases, three sets of facts, and it's going to be a lengthy uh, decision. And so the tribunal is going to take some time to 
to put it together. And does it work like a court case as far as with what the tribunal comes out with, however the tribunal rules? Does that, does that then set, as you said, it would set a precedent, but, but, what, but would it mean then that salon owners and estheticians would have to follow that? Or do you see this perhaps going into a court-type setting? Well, there is precedential value to whatever the tribunal decides to do. And so if, if the tribunal decides to find against my client, uh, it would be putting notice, uh, putting on notice all the rest of the aesthetic providers who work out of their own homes that they're expected to provide this service uh, or else. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think that there's any doubt that if that occurred that uh, we would be appealing. Which is just, I mean, I, again, I'm, I'm sure people hearing this are just shaking their heads that, that it's not an issue of, of how anybody identifies. It's not an issue of sex. It's an issue of you can't force women to do that, can you? No, there's personal autonomy. I mean, especially, and I think about the circumstances, how vulnerable you are. You don't know the individual, right? You've never met them in person. Somebody is coming to your house. You're trusting them enough to come in and provide an intimate service. And think about the vulnerabilities of the service provider, right? Think about the potential for problems and for abuse. I mean, there's, it's, it, it makes whoever is providing the service tremendously vulnerable. And when they say no, they have a right to say no. All right. Uh, we'll leave it there, but uh, we will follow up uh, with uh, the tribunal, uh, the uh, decision and what happens next. Uh, Jay Cameron, thank you so much for your time this morning. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you so much. So, well, uh, the Hotel Association of Canada is asking political parties in this country to do something about the increase in online short-term rentals. And joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this is Alana Baker, uh, Director of Government Relations for the Hotel Association of Canada. Alana, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, what are some of the concerns the Hotel Association has uh, with uh, things like Airbnb, uh, VRBO, the short-term rentals? Right. So we're talking about commercial short-term rental operators. So what I'm talking about is people who are buying up multiple units, entire homes and buildings and renting them out like a hotel. That segment um, of people who are using digital platforms like Airbnb continues to grow at a very fast pace. And while that is happening, our laws remain outdated. So Airbnb was meant to be a home sharing platform for everyday people to share rooms within their homes. And now it is a multi-billion dollar corporation that currently has no responsibilities to federal taxation and other regulatory realities. So in somewhere like Vancouver, where there are some regulations now when it comes to short term rentals, do you feel are those regulations enough that people have to register and there are rules around it? The regulations in Vancouver are a very good first step. We're seeing a number of jurisdictions around Canada who are moving forward with those types of regulations. What I would say about those specific regulations in Vancouver is uh, the challenge around enforcement. And currently, there is not a platform accountability piece with those regulations, which means that um, platforms like Airbnb, for example, are not mandated by law to delist any of the illegal listings. And we've seen precedent set for that in other areas around the world. Um, and if any, you know, if we want any regulations to actually be successful, we need to have that, that platform accountability and enforcement piece uh, in play as well. Uh, so you're not talking about people who maybe are renting other basement suites or a bedroom in their home or that kind of thing? 
Correct. We're not talking about somebody who wants to make a little extra money, who's hoping to make ends meet um, and renting out a room uh, within their own principal residence. That's not a problem. And that's what that's what true home sharing is. But we're talking about those people who are buying up multiple units, entire homes, entire buildings uh, and condos and renting them out like a hotel in our residential neighborhoods, I should add. Um, and and it's you know, it's becoming it's like I said, it's growing at a very quick pace and they're acting like like a legitimate accommodations provider. Uh, the top five Airbnb hosts after a recent investigation um, unveiled that they're renting dozens and dozens of these units and they're not contributing to our to, you know, Canadian economy and to society. And it's simply a matter of fairness. Um, Airbnb uh, has uh, come out and said that uh, or, or said that this is a bit of an exaggeration or saying that that it's not happening as much as the hotel association says. Uh, so how have you investigated or how do you know how widespread this is? Well, we're not disputing the fact that, um, you know, the majority of Airbnb's users uh, are, you know, those everyday Canadians looking to make ends meet. But that fact is uh, misleading because uh, a high um, percentage of Airbnb's revenue is generated by commercial operators. Almost half of them uh, are of their revenue is generated by multi-unit entire home renters. And we've done uh, a number, I've seen a number of research studies supporting that as well. So it's about the revenues. So while Airbnb um, was meant to be a home sharing platform, a significant portion of their of their revenues is generated by business. So this is a business. We're no longer talking about, um, you know, home sharing. And so in the case, though, where we do have some regulation, so in Vancouver, for example, I think they would still pay the, the tax. You, still, you pay the sales tax on, on the rentals if you, do, if you uh, have a short-term rental. Uh, where do you think, because I know it's been brought up that uh, people or that the, 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 we're losing out on tax revenue. How are we losing mm-hmm. out on tax revenue? Well, so every level of government has to has a role to play uh, when it comes to tax revenues. So you're correct. You know, in in British Columbia, um, they have an agreement in place where uh, the provincial sales tax is now being applied. But where we're missing out is at the national federal level, and we're talking about almost a hundred million dollars uh, in lost tax revenues because Airbnb and similar platforms are digital. Uh, foreign-owned companies, our laws right now don't recognize them as conducting business in Canada because there's no bricks and mortars here in Canada. And that's the loophole that we're looking to change. We know they're conducting business in Canada. Statistics Canada uh, recently revealed that um, almost $3 billion in revenue is generated by the short-term rental accommodation market, uh, but they're not contributing. They're not paying corporate income tax on their Canadian profits, and they're not collecting or remitting um, GST, HST at the federal level on behalf of their consumers. Uh, what about the, um, so, I mean, it is widely uh, popular. People are obviously using these rentals or they wouldn't be so successful. Uh, so what about, the, what do you say to that in that uh, they're popular for a reason, whether it's because they're less expensive or they're more uh, available than hotels, uh, that people are using them because they prefer this service over what they might get at hotels? Absolutely. I mean, and competition is a great thing and consumer choice is a wonderful thing as well. And we're not asking people to choose. We're not looking to eliminate uh, home sharing and we're not against home sharing, but it needs to be on a level playing field. And when we see commercial operators who are now using this platform, um, you know, as a business, that's the concern we have. You know, like I said, consumer choice is great. And if, you know, people want to stay in a different type of accommodation for one reason over another, that's okay. And we we have absolutely zero problems with that. But 
as the commercial operations continue to grow in residential neighbourhoods, there are a number of unintended consequences that come with that, and they need to be man- appropriately managed, um, and they need to contribute their fair share. Right now, they're currently benefiting from all of the, you know, they're reaping the benefits of operating in Canada without having to contribute. Uh, have you had much response since uh, calling this out and making the call that you'd like to see uh, more uh, government uh, in, uh, taking uh, taking a lead role in this and regulating this? You know, we've spoken to every federal party um, on a number of different occasions. They all, they all hear our concerns and they do share that um, there is something, you know, something needs to be done and they recognize that there are challenges. Right now, you know, we do have a federal election coming up, of course, and we're using this as an opportunity to say, you know what, the time is now. We need to see leadership. Um, why wait? Right now, Canadians are the ones who are losing out. And it's worth the reminder that while all of these companies are not paying their taxes, Canadians are the ones who end up having to pay more. So let's bring them above board, let the market compete, um, but it has to be on a level playing field. Uh, And what would a level playing field look like to you? So the taxation piece, of course, is is really important. Um, As I mentioned, you know, the corporate income tax uh, has to be paid, um, uh, collecting and remitting the GST uh, at the federal level. Um, You know, companies should also be mandated to issue tax information slips with a copy sent to the Canada Revenue Agencies that they're in the system um, so that we know that those who should be paying tax, in fact, are paying their taxes. Um, And then, you know, at the provincial and municipal levels, as we're seeing across the country, there are a number of other steps of best practices that we've seen done around the world and we've produced a framework that can apply um, certain measures to ensure that there's a level playing field and that would uh, include items such as limiting to principal residents, having a cap on the usage, ensuring that proper health and safety standards are in place and that enforcement mechanisms are in place as well. Is there any fear though that the people that are renting out rooms in their homes or or such that would also get swept up in that and then it would become far too difficult for people to do that and to make a little extra money? Um, well, when it comes to the taxation side, um, you know, many may not even realize, but like this isn't a new tax and um, they are already supposed to be paying taxes uh, on digital products and services if the taxes owed exceed $2. But Canada is currently one of only two countries who rely on a, a voluntary self-declaration system to do that, which is in c- at complete odds uh, with what the OECD recommends. And just as hotels and other businesses, you know, we collect and remit the sales tax on behalf of the consumers, the OECD, OECD recommends that that is, you know, um, the best and most efficient and effective way to facilitate the collection. So that should already be being done. Um, and hosts should also be already paying um, income tax on their rental income. The challenge is that we're not sure if these, these measures are actually being met. All right. So we'll leave it there. Alana Baker, thanks for your time this morning. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Well, as you likely know, there has been a lot of talk about policing in Surrey. The current mayor uh, running his campaign before he was elected on a promise to replace the RCMP with a civic force. Uh, That is still in full swing, although we don't know from the province yet whether or not it's even going to be approved. Uh, In the meantime, another group has been gathering signatures on a petition to keep the RCMP in Surrey. And one of the campaign coordinators for that group, I've Ivan Scott is joining us on the line now to talk a bit more about it. Ivan, thanks so much for being here. Good morning, Jules. Uh, Nice to be here and to talk to you. Uh, Last time I talked to you, you were around the 4,000 mark when it came to signatures. Uh, That number is much higher today. Well, it has. It's it's ballooned in actual fact. And uh, 
this last week we passed uh, the 11,000 mark, uh, 11,104 in actual fact. And what's the goal or have you reached the goal? No, no, that's not the goal. That was just an intermediate goal, uh, just to uh, get, get more or less the same or just exceed uh, the, the mayor's number of 11,003, 1,003 that he suggested that his uh, survey, his flawed survey, um, got approval from, uh, he got approval from that. All right. So, and at this point, what are you hearing from people when they sign the petition? Uh, Jill, they, they're, the people are, are really annoyed. Uh, there's a palpable anger out there about what has happened and, and why it's happening and why it's carrying on, even though they're, uh, they're showing their, their, uh, their anger by, by signing our petition in, in, in droves. And from various parts of Surrey, I mean, it's a large geographic area. Are you, are you hearing from people throughout the city? That's an interesting question. We've been to North, South, East and West Surrey and Central Surrey, and it's exactly the same message that we're getting from the people. They are speaking with the same voice. This has got nothing to do with big, small people, uh, different types of people, whatever groups they are. It's exactly the same message. We have to stop this, uh, this madness. And uh, this past week, uh, we saw another member of the Surrey uh, Safe Coalition, a number of member of Doug McAllen's team, uh, Councillor um, Hundial, who left that group. And one of the main reasons was how this is rolling out. Does that, do you think, bolster your campaign? Oh, I think it does, uh, Jill. I think uh, people are, are quite impressed with the way that these people have, have seen, the, the councillors have seen what's going on in there and the way that uh, Doug McCallum is running his show, which is his way or the highway. They don't even get to, to talk to him about anything like this. And you, you, you cannot engage with somebody who's, uh, who's not in, interested in, in uh, transparency at all. Um, it's, it's, uh, people would likely know this uh, in some of the coverage. Uh, it's uh, been made public that uh, your son, I believe, is employed by the Surrey RCMP. So what would you say? Because somebody might look at that and think, oh, well, your motivation for doing this is because you have a very personal connection to the force. Well, <laughs> one thing, Jill, I think you, if you talk to people out there, there's people who have, have uh, connections with RCMP people over the years and years and years. Was my uncle? Was my my nephew? Was my my niece? You know that my niece was there, and uh, so that's an irrelevancy. To be quite honest, uh, sure, my son is a is a member of the RCMP, uh, and and good on him, and good on anybody that's that's there. And and one of the things that, as I was going into the um, the fu- up towards the fusion festival yesterday, I, I suddenly realised that, you know, the RCMP have served this the people of Surrey with loyalty and honour since 1951, which is 68 years ago, and some indeed have made the ultimate sacrifice while serving and protecting us. And that made me, it made me feel very humble when I did that, when I suddenly realised that this morning. Hmm. And, and, but just to, to, to touch on that, though, it's, uh, you, some might wonder about the motivation saying that, well, perhaps you're doing this because your son could lose his job if the RCMP is replaced. Uh, incidentally, my son is not going to lose his job. He's now provincial, so he's not affected by this uh, this at all. So uh, my motivation is not not for that. Uh, he's part of the RCMP. He loves what he does. He's he just wants to serve and protect. I mean, that sounds a bit trite, but that's exactly why people join the RCMP. So no, it, it won't affect him. All right. Uh, no, not trite at all. I think that's, uh, hopefully that is the motivation why a lot of people go into policing and go into that line of work. Uh, you've talked about this in the past too, about the Surrey RCMP specifically and, and what a force it is. Uh, what are, are you concerned about replacing it with a force that, that do, do you think that, the, that a civic force maybe wouldn't be as good? 
Oh, absolutely not. Uh, you know, Mr. Mr. McCallum is wants to be the chief of basically the chief of the chief of police, and uh, I don't think he's had any any work in the in the uh, the force himself. So he's an amateur a policeman, if you want to call him that, and he wants to replace a professional force with his with his amateur force. I call it his amateur force because they'll never catch up to what we have there at present. I know one of the concerns brought forward by others as well who have dealt with RCMP is the whole idea of IHIT. And if they go down the road of going to a civic force that isn't part of IHIT, uh, people wondering about the ongoing investigations, people who have liaisons and who have dealt with officers, uh, if they lose that, which seems to be, I mean, not a huge number of people, but it's certainly one of the concerns that we've heard. I think there's a lot of that uh, around, Jill. There's a lot of stuff that the, the RCMP has that, that they've built up over the years and they know exactly what they're doing there. And if that gets lost, it's going to be lost uh, for it for years. It's, it's not something you can just replace. I'm not quite sure exactly how that works, but you know, it's a very, very serious concern. Absolutely. Uh, so we, with the petition now uh, at the uh, uh, north of the 11,000 uh, signature mark, what do you do next in this campaign? Well, we've uh, basically said that uh, our new target is 50,000, and uh, I think we think it's obtainable, uh, depending if we've got some time in there. And I think uh, Mr. Farnworth is taking his time and looking at it in the way that I think he's the sort of man that he would be. He's, he's, he's not taking this very lightly. And uh, so what we'll do is we'll carry on. We'll stay on program. We'll stay on what, we, what we're trying to do. We want to get petitions. We 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 just want to we want just people to to say what they believe in and uh, and then but hopefully down the, the the road the idea is that uh, when when the next BC legislature comes in we and we'll have reached our fifty thousand we'll present it to the legislature. Right, and you mentioned uh, Mike Farnworth. Uh, he's uh, in charge of this file. Uh, he has said that nothing's going to be happening uh, this summer. Uh, it's a huge decision to make. And uh, last time I talked to him, I think I asked, well, maybe in the fall. He wouldn't even commit to that. So you definitely do have time uh, to continue doing this, although it might be all for naught. If the government comes out and says, no, you don't have a plan to transition uh, to, the, to the Surrey uh, leadership, uh, it might not, uh, might not matter at all. I think everything matters. To be quite honest, Jill, there is a groundswell. Mr. Mr. McCallum has said he hasn't seen any pushback from any of his citizens. Well, he can come down and he's welcome to stand with us and, and listen to what the, the people are saying when they come and sign. Uh, and he'll notice very quickly that there is a pushback. And at this stage, we're way on our, we're, we're way, on our way to, to achieving that 50,000. And uh, it, it, it's incredible the way that, uh, that, that people are responding and, and pushing back. Have you had any discussions with Mayor Doug McCallum? Mr. McCallum does not engage with me, has not engaged with, with anything that I have. Emails and uh, phone calls and uh, messages have just gone to deaf ears. And if ever I hear from him, it's via the media. And he said, well, he doesn't care about petitions. It it's doesn't bother him. And uh, I would be, I, I, if I was him, I'd be sitting up and take note because with his uh, councillors leaving like that, there's got to be some problems in, in council at this stage that he is definitely not looking at. All right, so we'll leave it there. Ivan, thanks so much for joining us with the update today. Appreciate it. Bill, you're very, very welcome. And, uh, you know, one thing that I wanted to say is, is that 
if this mayor's plan ever sees the light of day, it's, it's probably be the biggest political boondoggle since nearly the elephant packed her trunk and ran away to the circus. You know, this is how stupid it is. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll have to wait and see for sure. Ivan, thanks again. And for a lot of people, transit is a big deal, whether it's lack of trying to have services at the time you need them and getting them to the places where there is the biggest demand. Well, there is a new public advocacy group that is uh, has been formed in Surrey. Uh, it could expand as well. And it's all about uh, transit advocacy. And joining me on the line to talk about what this means is Sunny Prabhakar, who is a member of the group, the Surrey Chapter. Sunny, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Thank you for having us. Uh, so tell me a bit about this group. You launched uh, on Friday. Uh, what is this group all about? I mean, we, I mean as I said, we, are, you know, we call ourselves Public Transit Advocacy Network. And then we want basically what our major um, you know, um, uh, need is equitable transit development across the south of uh, you know, Fraser River. Basically, when you look at uh, how the transit has been developing, you find that over the years, uh, cities like Surrey, Langley, Maple Ridge, Abbotsford, Mission, Chilliwack, these are the places that are being kind of you know, comparatively ignored. But most of the time, um, TransLink wants to invest in a place where there will be you know, more short-term profits, so Vancouver becomes the, the, the place of choice all the time. So uh, the places that are south of Fraser, they get ignored, and then in that process, they're falling behind, and then again, when new investments come in, that goes back to Vancouver again. So this becomes a vicious cycle. So that's where we want to interfere and do something about it. So we heard from TransLink just this past week, uh, taking a look at the business case for SkyTrain uh, going into Surrey and Langley further, uh, something that Doug McCallum, the mayor of Surrey, has talked about. Uh, the price tag certainly has gone up for that. Uh, what are your thoughts on that uh, project and the plans for that? The um, SkyTrain part of it, right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, we need more. I mean, we need SkyTrain. We were against that LRT, uh, you know, in the beginning. And then we need SkyTrain. We need SkyTrain to to extend towards all these cities, you know, so that all these people can can have a, a, a commute commute among themselves. If you look at the population of all these cities, I mean, added together, there'll be more than Vancouver, right? So that's what we want. And this actually became in the context of. Um, the other major development that they were talking about, the ultra-high-speed ground transportation, which is a train that's going to run between Seattle and Vancouver, and this highlight is it, it can cover within one hour, less than an hour. It takes only less than an hour to travel from Seattle to Vancouver. This is being promoted uh, by BC government as well as uh, the Washington uh, mayor. So they want to have this. Now, our, you know, um, our premier also said that we can have that hub either in Vancouver or Surrey. But what we want to um, inform them is that we need to have that in order to get the best out of that. We need to have our local SkyTrain networks well developed so that people can travel between them. If you if you look at this plan, also what the American side uh, is saying is. They want to extend it from Seattle to Portland, and then they forecast that 50% of their traffic will come from 
that of the entire traffic, the 50% of entire traffic will be between Portland and Seattle. It is understandable because fewer people cross borders. So we want that kind of benefit to come to lower mainland also. You know, so that's why we are educating this. Right. There's been a lot of criticism, though, uh, with people saying that's all fine to talk about this high-speed train that's going to link uh, Metro Vancouver to Seattle and Portland, but uh, maybe we should be focused more on the more local projects, uh, like the ones you talked about, to getting more local transit south of the Fraser. Absolutely. That, that's, that's very important. That's what we are also talking about. You know, we have to focus on that so that even those kind of international projects will benefit only if you have local commute, which is proper, right? I mean, people have to come to Vancouver. Vancouver is already congested. So if you have a high-speed, uh, you know, train hub at Vancouver, people have to, first of all, reach Vancouver. And that happens even if it's for Surrey. Surrey is more centrally placed. So Surrey is a better place to have the hub. But even then, people from other places will have to come to the hub, and they should have a better transportation system. Today, if you go to... Like on, on any any weekday at six o'clock, if you go to Surrey Central Station, you will find hundred meters long lineups for you know buses like five zero two and five zero three. I mean, there's a B line that is promised, but it hasn't come in yet. So we have such um, smaller problems everywhere within our area that has to be solved. Exactly. That's what we're seeing. Right. Uh, you mentioned earlier, too, that your group is opposed to LRT uh, rather than SkyTrain. Uh, why are you mm-hmm. opposed to, to LRT? I mean, LRT, LRT would, it is um, you know, uh, less costly. That was the main argument there. It will take a lot of people from point A to point B. But then what people don't realize or ignore is that it creates more than 100, I think at that time it was 140 red lights or something. You know, because it has to go through normal roads, it has to cut through all those roads, that will create way more red lights. So when it's solving one problem, it's creating way more problems for the rest of the people who are traveling you know, you know, by other means. So in effect, it's actually creating more problems than it's solving. You know, So that's why we want it. So what happens is when you look at, at a very short-term goals like typically transferring when they look at 20 years and things like that it it looks like solving a problem but that's from a corporate point of view when you look at a social point of view you're you know 20 years becomes a short term actually you have to look at 50 years and 60 years so whenever you're doing this kind of planning we should have uh, you know the short-term planning that we do should fall in line with the long-term 50 60 year old uh, year horizons that, uh, you know, that we're planning. For that, we should have in the first place such bigger plans. And then we should start with our short-term plans that will fall in line. So that's how we should go about planning. Uh, what are your thoughts on, uh, I know your group is based in Surrey, but uh, the Massey Tunnel being one of the biggest choke points, uh, and now we don't know what's going to be happening there. What are your thoughts as far as getting transit into that part uh, of the region? Um, yeah, it, it, absolutely. You know, we need solutions for that. We need, uh, you know, we have to do proper studies about it. Right now, what we're doing is we're just leaving it to TransLink and then, you know, assuming that they are experts in transportation and they will come out with solutions and present in front of us. And what hap- what's happening is they're looking at it from a purely corporate point of view. Profit is their, you know, main philosophy. Whereas when we have a group, the way we want to have it is 
we want to have some experts study this who are not you know purely translating people who are people who would you know uh, will be answerable to our government you know so when that happens there will be a social cause as a in its center and then we will look at all these in a in a from a bigger perspective and then we will decide so that's the kind of study that we want we are actually we want to have a survey done among people instead of we assuming that this is a solution you know we are a citizens group basically we are not transporting experts you know we have people I mean, when we uh, the day before yesterday we were quite encouraged there were more than 40 people you know who came and we are all volunteers and there were you know um, software engineers and teachers and all those kind of people in it people who are in politics uh, you know who do advocacy work so we are basically a citizens group though educated people we are not experts in transportation so we need a group formed like that by the government and do studies about this and then do this equitable um, kind of development for the entire region all right so we will leave it there sunny prabhakar thank you so much for joining us appreciate your time thank this morning for the opportunity bye bye Well, my next guest is described as a Renaissance man, author, academic, and musician. He's also written a book called Disruptive Play, The Trickster in Politics and Culture. That book uh, described as uh, connecting mythology, folklore, popular culture, art, politics, and play theory. Joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this is author Shepard Siegel. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Jill. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, you're in town. Uh, you've been promoting the book. I think you have another event coming up uh, today, which we will uh, mention in just a moment. Uh, but first, talk about uh, disruptive play, the trickster in politics and culture. How would you describe it? Well, uh, to describe disruptive play itself, uh, you first have to understand two other forms of play. Uh, the first is kind of like uh, the kind of playfulness we have when we're born. Uh, the infant human. We all know infant humans are more vulnerable than other animals, but it's also the moment in life when we're most like other animals. And all life forms, including infant humans, are able to be playful in a non-competitive way. Jill, I'd say, for lack of a better term, frolic and wrestling. You know, we just kind of, we giggle and we play and we enjoy being alive. And then as we hit toddler stage, we're three, four, five years old, culture and our parents start telling us, well, you know, you could turn that into a game. You could have winners and losers. You could keep score. You could try to get better at it once you've established it as a game. And so that's the second kind of play. So the first kind I described is original play. The second is what I call cultural play. And that's where we do start to become competitive. We, and this is where we start to, you know, measure ourselves and we get, get uh, uh, concerned with achievement and competition. Now, there's nothing wrong with it. I think we need both kinds in our life. But if I were to make an argument, it's that our society has just become overly competitive and we get so um, obsessed with achievement and competition that we start to forget and lose touch with that ability to be playful the way we were when we were very young. And other life forms don't lose touch. They they continue to be playful in that way throughout life. So disruptive play is when you inject original play into the cultural play arena, when you kind of call the game and you, you disrupt 
the, the, the competition. And this has been going on since time immemorial, right up to the present. Hmm. And so how did you take all of that and write it down and, and put it into a book? <laughs> very, very slowly, I'm afraid, because <laughs> I had another career as a musician and as an educator, but it all got to, and, and what happened was I was in education. I was working for a curriculum organization and, uh, and back in 2014, 2015, and, and then uh, Robin Williams died. And when Robin Williams passed on, it, uh, it was that was the day I decided I needed to get this book uh, written and out there because uh, he taught Robin Williams was like that. He was a trickster-type character. He had that playfulness in him throughout his life, and that was a signal to me that if I had a message to deliver on this, now is the time to get it done. So... Um, so I started investigating it and realized that when you get a grown-up, someone like a Groucho Marx or a, or a Robin Williams, you know, an Andy Kaufman, and they, this grown-up has not lost touch with that kind of playfulness as a child. But you don't have to be a celebrity. It could be you. It could be me. Anyone, that kind of person is going to encounter, consciously or unconsciously, the oldest archetype known to humanity, and that's the archetype of the trickster. The trickster's been with us forever. Every culture on the planet has a trickster god, a trickster character. In this part of the world, among the indigenous folks, it would be Raven. Um, the great American trickster of the 20th century would be Bugs Bunny. Um, and they have these certain attributes. So so I'm not sure I'm answering your question, but that was kind of how my search uh, uh, unfolded. And then I looked for examples throughout culture, throughout time. And I think, Jill, one of the main points is I talk about how uh, tricksters were different in the Western world, the way they were treated in the Western world compared to the rest of the world. And how is it different? Well, what would happen is that, see, tricksters, they like playing tricks, but tricks get played on them, too. And they're very powerful gods, and they're not evil. But the funny thing is they're not good either. They're, they're kind of pre-moral. They just want to have fun. And so what, what happened in the Western world is if, you, if you're building empires and you have to have armies and you have to conquer, uh, you have to convince your army that they're the good guys and the other guys are the bad guys. So you have to have very clear-cut ideas of what's good and what's evil. So you can't have a powerful God running around who is, is amoral in this sense, who is really just out there for fun and, and doesn't define himself or the world around him as good or evil. So what the Western world did was instead of worshiping the trickster or, you know, or, you know, not what I say worship, I just mean, you know, showing it a lot of respect and so forth, um, like, like, like Raven is or Eshu from West Africa, the Western world turned the trickster into the court jester or the fool or even the devil. Uh, and that way they kind of kept the trickster imprisoned in a way. We can't let you be powerful because you're getting in the way of us building empire until World War One. And World War One was so bloody and so stupid, if I may use a strong language here, 
um, that the greatest artists of Europe took flight and went to Zurich, Switzerland. So they left Germany, they left France, they left England, um, and, and, and they went to Zurich, Switzerland, which was neutral, and they formed Dada, which was the art of the absurd. And there's a, lo- a whole chapter about that, of course. But but the point was, these were very playful characters, these Dada artists. They were kind of the first hippies. They were part artists and part anti-war movement. And they said to Europe, they said, we're not going to be your court jesters anymore. We're not going to be your pawns. We're not going to create art the way you want it to us to. We'll create the art of the absurd. An image a lot of folks might be familiar with is Marcel Duchamp who entered a men's urinal, turned it on its side, and entered it in an art exhibition. And they, they would say, look, we're just starting to sell this impressionist stuff. We're just starting to make some good money off this art, and you submit this urinal, you're ruining our, our game. You're ruining our game where we're winning and making money off your art. That's absurd. He goes, that's right. But you can't call me absurd when men are dying by the thousands on the Western Front, and you can't even tell me why. And you're calling me absurd? You see what I see? What I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So even though tricksters are amoral in one sense, they're also anti-war, and they're not anti-war because war is bad or evil, and they're good. They're anti-war because war's no fun, <laughs> and tricksters just want to have fun. And there's no less fun activity on the planet, in my opinion, than war. Uh, the book was uh, recently uh, nominated for uh, Independent Book of the Year, so congratulations on that. Uh, you've been in town. You have another event coming up today. What's the reaction been like to the book? Well, I, I, I have great conversations. I mean, everybody can relate to playfulness, and um, I, I find it's the elderly folks and the young kids <laughs> who relate to it most instantly because the kids are still in touch with their, you know, playfulness. And the older folks, um, you know, you know what I'm saying? You know, older folks, they've been through the grind. They've had their time in competitive and cultural play, and now they're they're looking to enjoy life. So the reaction's been very positive. I, I love just talking to people just how you and I are talking right now, and the book's been an opportunity for me to do that. Um, I love coming to Canada. I, I live in Seattle, but I, I spent some time in Calgary, and, of course, a lot of time in Vancouver. All right. And, and by the way, oh, yeah, no, go ahead. I won, too. Oh, I excellent. I didn't get V-Book of the Year. <laughs> I didn't get V-Book of the Year. I got basically fourth place, but I feel pretty darn good about that. Oh, and so you should. Uh, what time is the event today, if people want to come check it out? So I'll be at... Um, so my friends in Canada still call it chapters, but I'm going along with Indigo. <laughs> <laughs> At uh, Broadway in Granville. Okay. And I'll be there at 11 o'clock. All right. Sounds great. Well, Shepard, thanks for taking some time uh, to chat with us this morning. Uh, Hopefully a lot of people will come out and see you later today. And thanks again. Thank you very much, Jill.